welcome to our webinar this morning, which is entitled Biden at One, Assessing the Administration's Immigration Record. My name is Doris Meissner. I'm a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute, where I direct our program on US immigration policy. And I'd like to welcome you, uh, as well as wish you a happy new year. We have a very distinguished panel this morning, uh, important topics to talk about. I will introduce the uh, speakers shortly. But let me begin with a housekeeping note, which is this. If you have any technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org or call us at 202-266-1929. We will have a Q&A uh, in the final segment of this event this morning. It will not be a voice Q&A. So please type any questions into the Q&A box or mail them to events at migrationpolicy.org. Now, the topic this morning uh, is drawn from an analysis that we published today. It's called Biden at the One-Year Mark, A Greater Change in Direction on Immigration Than is Recognized. It's been co-authored by uh, two people on our staff, Muz Afrashishti, whom you will hear from, and Jessica Bolter. And, uh, uh, and it is based on tracking that MPI does of immigration actions in all administrations. Uh, and in this particular case, what we wanna open with is the fact that we all know, of course, that it's become commonplace to observe that with immigration having been a top tier issue under the prior administration, more immigration actions had been taken than in other, any other prior presidency. That was true at the time, but today we have a new reality. With Biden at one, our tracking shows that the current administration, which of course began with the announcement of significant immigration executive actions within hours of the inauguration a year ago uh, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow uh, that pace has actually con continued and immigration has been a top tier issue for this administration to the point that almost 300 actions have been taken during this first year. That outpaces the Trump record, which was 86 actions during the first year at this mark. And those Biden immigration actions have been across the immigration system and across the spectrum. However, the news reporting and the public perception have been almost entirely on issues at the border and on Congress, the paralysis in Congress on immigration legislation. So our discussion this morning is an effort to look at the totality of the record of the Biden administration in its first year, uh, and of course, what lies ahead. The numbers are illustrative and they certainly just tell us uh, proportionately what's going on, but what we really wanna do this morning is dig deeper and look at the substance uh, look at what the changes are that are underway, where we are going uh, with immigration actions, and of course, more broadly, what they represent. So in order to do that, we're going to start off uh, with a presentation by one of the co-authors of the analysis of the Biden record, and that is uh, Muzakar Shishti, who is a senior fellow also here at MPI and directs our MPI office at the New York University School of Law. We will then follow that presentation from comments by three people across 
the immigration spectrum, beginning with uh, representation uh, from the administration, the senior person in the White House, Esther Oliveria, who is deputy director for immigration at the Domestic Policy Council. That will be followed by Lorella Praley, who is the co-president of Community Change and Community Change Action, and has been very involved in immigration issues and in this administration's efforts uh, where immigrant advocacy is concerned. And then finally, Elizabeth Newman, who brings a former DHS perspective and a national security perspective, having been the former assistant secretary for counterterrorism and threat prevention at the Department of Homeland Security, currently is the chief strategy officer for Moonshot. So with that, let me turn the screen and the microphone over to you, Moose. Thank you so much, Doris, and um, welcome to all of you who have joined us this morning and Happy New Year. So as Doris rightly introduced the topic by saying that Biden obviously followed Trump, who had made immigration a signature issue, both of his campaign and on presidency. So given the sharp anti-immigrant stance that, the, that Trump had run his presidency on, it was clear that during the campaign, Biden made changes to immigration and unwinding Trump an important part of his campaign. And he kept his promise. On day one, as Doris said, he signed six executive orders and sent to Congress a very comprehensive framework on some very basic and important changes to our immigration law. In my mind, one of the most sweeping frameworks uh, sent to Congress by any president in a generation. And then, unfortunately, the two of the main promises of the presidency, which is bringing order to the border and providing a better, better asylum system at the border, and legalizing a section, if not all, of the unauthorized population in the United States were two of the major promises of the campaign and the early presidency. And they were also high on the expectations of the advocates and probably the media. And they have not happened. And so while all the unmet expectations of the border and the lack of legalization have gotten all the oxygen uh, in the room and on the Zoom, uh, we, we, must, uh, we must pay attention to the important executive actions that the administration has implemented in the course of last one year. As Doris mentioned, they now total 296. Uh, and 89 of them are unwinding Trump. We keep track of them. And my colleague, Jessica Bolter, who is a master tracker and gets a huge credit for putting all this uh, cataloging of these actions together. She tracks them every day. The three were edited since we started drafting uh, this, this, this paper. And in the first, if you're just following math on the rates of change in the first year of the Trump presidency, 86, executive actions were introduced, uh, Biden has introduced pretty close to 300. So you know these outpacing Trump, but most of this is unnoticed, unrecognized. But to us, these are, they may be small board and big board changes, but they do have an impact on the law, on the lives of large number of people in ways big and small. We're not going to catalog all the actions for you today, but we're going to provide thematically some of the more important prominent changes. The first to me is about interior enforcement. I pay a lot of attention to interior enforcement. We seem to forget that Trump presidency was marked by saying that every unauthorized person in the United States is a priority for removal. 
and that every, the mantra of the administration became that every unauthorized person should be looking over their shoulders every day. That reality has fundamentally changed for the 11 million people in the country. The administration it's in two weeks after AIN issued the temporary guidance on enforcement. Final guidelines were issued by Secretary Mayorkas in late November. And they narrowed the priorities for arrest, detention and removal to a small group of people, people who are national security risk, people who committed high crimes and people who are recent entrants. And then in the November final guidelines, a very important conceptual change was introduced is that ICE officers were told that even if some people fit these three broad categories, you still can't take a categorical approach. You still have to look at the individual circumstances of a case, both look at aggravating and mitigating factors to balance. That means you look at the person and not the crime. This is a huge change in the way we approach enforcement writ large. So you could now see a situation where someone who has a you know, decades old conviction may not be removed under the priorities. Second is that they obviously went on to, uh, to, to, to further expand areas where people will not be picked. This is what we call these, uh, these certain uh, sacred, uh, you know, places where people can't be picked from churches to hospitals, uh, uh, to schools. And they also said that certain categories of people will not be subject to removal, especially about women in their either uh, prenatal or, or postnatal circumstances. And, and then uh, they also, in my case, one of the more important things is that they introduced the guidelines that every military veteran who has been deported, if they present compelling cases, they should be allowed to return back to the United States. And then and they, they ended worksite enforcement as we know it. These large-scale raids will no longer take place. Uh, to me, the added uh, element in that new policy is that people are now incentivized to come and bring uh, their complaints against abusive employers if they face them by telling them that if they come forward, they will be rewarded with uh, deferred action in the United States. And the detention, long-term family detention, as we know it, has ended. Uh, the, the, the administration has ended two notorious detention uh, facilities in Georgia and in Massachusetts. And if you really look at the combined effect of this, uh, it's quite, quite significant. Uh, just on the arrests, if you look at, I'm not talking about the border arrests here, I'm talking about arrests in the interior of the country. Uh, in the last 11 months of the Trump administration, the average arrests per month was about 6,000. That number has dropped to 3,000 today. If you look at people in detention, the average daily detention population in the country is about 19,200 today. It's the lowest it has been since 1999. And this is despite the high level of detentions that are taking place at the border, which means that detentions in the interior of the country have dropped significantly. At the end of the, uh, of the Trump administration, about that population of the interior arrests was about, about oh, sorry, interior detained people, was about 13,700. In the first 11 months of the Biden administration, that number has fallen down to about 5,300. So if you really look at the individual, how these things impact individuals in their day-to-day -day life, this is clearly significant. Let me just move quickly to the humanitarian uh, protection issues. This covers refugees, parolees, 
asylum deferred action. Uh, Trump administration had essentially waged a war against humanitarian protections on all these fronts. He had, he had tried to end temporary protected status of everyone who had it. Only the courts had given people a reprieve from that. In the first uh, acts of Biden administration, they extended temporary protected status to Venezuela and Myanmar. And they also made sure that everyone who had their temporary protected status in the past was assured to keep it. Uh, they, the, uh, in the second important move on this, they, uh, they redesignated number of countries for, for, for TPS, which means that more people from those countries are now eligible. If you look at the asylum uh, sort of criteria under the Trump administration, because of uh, guidelines and opinions issued by the Attorney General, many people, especially those fleeing gang violence and domestic violence, were deemed ineligible for asylum. Now, Attorney General Garland has reversed those opinions for a larger important sections of the population, especially from Central America, are now eligible for asylum. The Afghan story, many of us are familiar with with the downfall of the, of the regime um, in, in Kabul in mid-August, uh, the administration airlifted 124,000 people out of, out of Kabul. That is clearly one of the largest um, single uh, removals of people from any airlifting people in our, in our history. About 70,000 of them have been granted parole in the United States so far, some are waiting. We have also learned that about 35,000 more people have applied for parole from different parts of the world because they're eligible to do so. And in one of the least uh, known uh, policies, the administration allowed that everyone who has applied for a U visa, that while they're waiting for the processing of the U visa, they're eligible for deferred action. The U visas take long time to process, so a lot of people are in limbo in that time. So we have we have calculated this these these subsets of population and concluded if you look at the new TPSs, keeping intact the people who had TPS in the past, and if you add people who are now going to get deferred action as a result of the changes in the U visa policy, that close to a million people, I think million thirty thousand people today are free from being deported and are eligible for removal. On top of this, obviously, the administration reversed the huge Trump uh, narrative on refugees and has, and has raised the cap for next year for 125,000 for refugee admissions. Obviously, there's been a huge, uh, that's a big change from Trump, which had gone down to 15,000. Obviously, all these 125,000 people are not coming very time soon. There are strong impediments about which, which I'm sure some members of, my, of our panel will speak to. And I want to quickly talk about legal immigration. This is both about barriers to entry and about getting benefits for people in the United States. Uh, public charge is the most significant event on this. Uh, they, the, there was a lot of controversy about public charge rule uh, during the Trump administration that they had said that factors like age, education, and your income are going to determine whether you get a green card or not. Uh, that was reversed by this administration in, I thought, a very creative way. They did not take the time to, to rescind the old rule, try to bring a new rule. They very creatively converted a decision by a judge against the Trump administration's policy 
into a new policy through rule making, which now we go back to the 1999 guidelines on public charge. Now I'll tell you how significant it is. MPI in 2018 had concluded that about 69% of the green card holders in this country met at least one criteria for not, for not meeting the public charge uh, rule at about 45, 43% had at least two factors. So this really affects millions of people in their ability to access green card. Uh, and then I think in some of the smaller uh, uh, board topics, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the administration, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, let me just go before to one of the more important ones, the travel ban. Uh, the travel bans had become obviously quite notorious. The travel bans were lifted early in the administration and, and not only were they lifted, they allowed people who had been denied entry under the old order to reapply, a significant concession. And then we have made a quick uh, look at, if you look at the top five countries, which were subject to the travel bans, most of these are from Middle East and Africa. Their, their approval rate has now gone up anywhere between 20% to 100%. And then in this smaller, what we call smaller board, which I was trying to get to, these are minor administrative changes, but they do have impact on people's lives. That, that you don't need to show for in-person for, for in interviews for a number of visas abroad. You will now be able to get a work authorization for two years instead of one year, which means that people have less time to wait. And then they also don't have to pay your fees uh, for, for renewals of, of these, of these uh, uh, documents. And then they made, they, they made significant changes on employment-based immigration that in the Trump administration, people were told that you will can deny you without giving you the opportunity to to present more and uh, additional documentation uh, for your case, uh, and that they made uh, spouses of H-1Bs and Ls uh, eligible for, for, um, for uh, work authorization. Now, this is, I think, all positive. Let's just only for a conclusion, just say that there are challenges. The border has been a significant challenge. They have had very difficult time undoing a lot of the Trump uh, sort of era policies. Uh, the most important is this Title 42, can't go unmentioned, that this is a policy that still remains in effect. The problems about this is now becoming increasingly hard to see the justification for it. If the health ground was the justification, but we have now allowed everyone through, uh, through ports of entry to come to the United States if they're vaccinated. How can we justify that by not allowing people at the border who are vaccinated? The second is that it's not clear that there are many exceptions to the travel. Some are allowed in and some are not allowed in. So with the result that this has become much more of a random process, with the result that a lot of people are making various, again, repeated attempts to enter. So the recidivism has increased under this policy. The Remain in Mexico, the famous MPP program, the administration tried to reverse, but the Supreme Court would not allow it. So that obviously remains a challenge. Let me just conclude by saying that there are some positive things which we think may bear fruit uh, in, in, in a little while. They may have more sustained uh, sort of relevance. Uh, one is that the administration is looking at root causes. Uh, AID is investing a lot of money in Central America to look at issues of corruption. Even the Department of Labor is investing money to increase worker protections in some of these countries. 
The administration has tried to get coordinated response on hemispheric sort of coordination of immigration. Uh, 16 countries uh, are part of this collective process. Uh, the administration has also put effort with Mexico and Canada to have a coordinated response uh, in dealing with the migration at the uh, at the coming to to the uh, to the border. So, Doris, I think I'll 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 conclude there. Obviously, that these are very important changes, but the, some of the big stuff is still not happening. The problem is that the issues of legalization require congressional approval. Congress has stalled on this issue for a long time. So, therefore, once the hopes through let's through legislative change are dimming, we have to go back to realize that there'll be most of the changes may still happen through executive action. So how much more can be done to unwind Trump and how much more can be done to rebuild big, the executive action is obviously going to or remain the focus of all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Muz. That covers a lot of territory and there's a lot more information in the actual document uh, which is available to you who are watching. Now, Esther, we're going to turn to you next. You're in at the heart of all of this, uh, watching so much of it happening and this pace of change uh, creates extraordinary uh, up-temp, as would be said <laughs> in, in uh, broader terms. So talk to us about how you see it. Doris and, 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 and Moose and, and everyone in MPI <clears throat> for the opportunity to speak with you today and to be part of this distinguished panel with Elizabeth and Lorella. Um, and, and to join the hundreds that are on, on the call. Um, so um, I am going to start by highlighting um, the work that Moose has um, um, touched on in some of the areas and maybe um, provide you a preview of coming attractions um, in some of the areas that, that Moose so um, 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 thoroughly covered um, earlier. And then I'll turn to, to the work on the border and, um, and the congressional work that, that Moose has also um, discussed. Um, so um, let me um, turn to um, the, the issues um, with respect to um, um, attempts to, in the protection space, to continue to to provide additional protection to individuals here. As, as Moose said, we have um, designated a number of new countries for temporary protected status, in, including um, large numbers of Venezuelans and, and, and Haitians. Um, and, um, and so the numbers have increased um, and, and, and renewed protection for a number of those. So they we have um, over 400,000 more people now covered by TPS. There is work that continues on the TPS front. Um, other designations are under active consideration. We are also, as many of you on the call um, know, um, um, still um, involved in, in a lawsuit with respect to um, El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua. Um, and so a lot of work still needs to be done there with um, uh, the review um, on those countries. So stay tuned for more on that front. Um, we have also um, um, undertaken a massive airlift, um, bringing um, or uh, taking out of Afghanistan 124,000 people and bringing more than 70,000 of those to the U.S., paroling them in. 
and, and providing them an opportunity to apply for asylum. We had wanted to do more. Um, we had legislation before the Congress that would have allowed um, these individuals to um, apply for um, permanent resident status um, directly and bypass the, the asylum process. But unfortunately, um, Congress did not cooperate with us on that front. So they are going through the asylum process now. Um, we have also done a lot of work um, with respect to helping um, U visa petitioners as, as as Moos mentioned, and, and now um, a number of individuals, over, over 280,000 who are here awaiting um, adjudication of their cases can, can work um, in, um, legally in, in this country while their cases continue to be considered. Um, on, and, and there's um, work underway in other areas that um, uh, the, to protect other populations, including special immigrant juveniles. Um, uh, I won't go into those details yet. They're still too early in the process to discuss in more detail, but, but stay tuned. There's more work underway at USCIS to, to help other vulnerable groups. Um, with respect to um, refugees, um, we, we um, came into the administration with um, um, and in, with a refugee resettlement program that had been completely dismantled and have been working diligently to rebuild that program. That takes a lot of time, especially as we um, attempt this work um, under a, a pandemic, but the work has started under, and it is underway and we are, um, we have set the highest ceiling, 125,000 refugees, the highest ceiling since 1993. Um, I, there will be an all out effort to meet that, but it is a very, very high ceiling <laughs> and we may not get there, but we are putting in place the building blocks to, to get there um, um, in the foreseeable future. There's a lot of work that also has been done to restore um, protection um, um, to asylum seekers. A, a number of the worst AG decisions from the prior administration have now been vacated. And um, significant work has been done and will, um, and a final rule will be issued soon that will allow asylum officers to fully adjudicate asylum claims. Um, um, and that will, will help um, a tremendous amount of people um, by having those cases adjudicated in a non-adversarial setting. There's also a lot of work underway on the particular social group rule. This is an effort that stalled under the Obama administration. And I can tell you um, under the Biden administration, we have done more work to get us closer to um, hopefully issuing um, um, an NPRM on PSG in the near future than in one year than we had, well, less than one year because I, the work didn't start immediately, but in, in less than one year than than in eight years under the Obama administration. And, um, and that will be a, a very broad rule that will address some of the other, um, um, undo some of the other asylum regulatory harms um, um, that um, were enacted under, under the Trump administration. Um, Moose did an excellent work. I'm going to turn now to interior enforcement and he did an excellent work of, of um, covering all of the um, different areas that we have, um, and we've seen just a radical change in the way uh, ICE um, and the Department of Homeland Security um, 
is now looking at interior enforcement. Um, uh, we now see a uh, return to the exercise of, of um, prosecutorial discretion, something that was completely um, eliminated in, in the Trump administration. And for the first time ever, we have uh, guidance to the field that says that the mere fact that an individual is removable should not alone be the basis for an enforcement action. That is a radical departure from um, decades of um, 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 PD memos um, on the exercise of, of discretion. Um, and as Moose mentioned, there have been other changes um, um, with respect to um, worksite enforcement, ending the raids, um, ending family detention, um, expanding um, uh, protected areas, all, all very important work that we, um, the, the DHS and, and ICE in particular continue to focus on. Turning now to um, um, other work, um, we, we have, um, stood up a family reunification task force to um, start to undo and unite, um, well, we, to, we have undone, but start to unite the families that were separated under the um, Trump zero tolerance policy. This work has been more difficult than anyone um, realized, but, but we, um, because we had to put the, the frameworks in place um, in, in the Northern Triangle countries and here in the US, working with international organizations, with the State Department, with DHS, with NGOs. But that framework is now in place and, and we like, will start seeing larger numbers of families um, that will come forward to be reunited with, with their relatives, um, with their children here in the US. There is also significant work that has, um, been undertaken at the Department of Justice with respect to the immigration court backlogs. You don't see it yet, but the building blocks are being put in place to identify cases in, in the immigration court uh, that should be, uh, that are not priority cases that can either be administratively closed and terminated. And, and we have done um, some of the initial work by vacating some of the um, prior administration policies that would have prevented us from from administratively closing um, cases. Um, so expect more on that front um, to, to address immigration court backlogs. Um, at USCIS um, um, and, and at the State Department, we've seen um, the disruptive travel bans ended. Um, we have seen policies be put back in place that promote naturalization. Um, uh, it, streamline the process um, um, so, so individuals who are eligible and qualified for naturalization have an opportunity um, to, to apply for that um, very important um, benefit. We've also seen a lot of work under very difficult conditions at, at consular posts abroad um, where um, many um, embassies and, and posts are still not at full capacity due to um, serious um, um, COVID um, outbreaks in, in other countries. But we, we've seen very creative work underway to waive in-person interviews um, with respect to non-immigrant cases where that work is possible um, um, and suspending or reusing biometrics where, where we're able to do so. Um, we, we've also seen a lot of, um, of as, as Moose mentioned, um, the, the um, 
another significant obstacle to legal immigration was the public charge rule that was put in place in the, the Trump administration. That rule has been vacated and um, we will soon be issuing a new NPRM on public charge um, that returns us to a prospective um, an analysis of backgrounds of inadmissibility. Um, we have been frustrated by, by the court order in, in DACA, um, but have I've done um, and, and by the lack of action by the Congress, but um, are doing a lot of work on um, finalizing um, a rule to codify the DACA um, um, process. And, and that will um, hopefully be issued in, in the coming months. Um, turning now to the border, um, and, and, and then I'll turn to the work in the Congress. There is still significant work underway. Um, it has been it has been a challenge. It has been frustrating um, to um, all of us in the inside and, 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 and personally to me. I wish we, we um, there's more that we 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 there's more that much more than we need to be do and, and could be doing. And, and 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 the building blocks for that are also underway. Uh, but um, we. We encountered. Um, unprecedented numbers of unaccompanied children early on in the process, um, early on in the administration, and had to stand up very quickly a process with, with um, HHS and DHS to try to um, move these children from border patrol stations where nobody wanted them um, there for any length of time whatsoever into um, better facilities. Um, into better um, care and custody at, at, um, at HHS Office of Refugee Resettlement. And um, it, we have now gotten to the point where um, there are, um, I, I don't know the latest, I wanna say like, no children in border patrol stations for um, over 72 hours. Um, um, and, um, and children um, in ORR um, custody, the numbers have, have decreased significantly and, are, and we have put in place uh, better systems to identify sponsors in the US and, um, and unite these children with, with their sponsors here, mostly parents. Um, we, um, we still have though the challenges that, that Moose alluded, um, mentioned like uh, Title 42. Uh, we have um, been forced to re-implement via court order um, uh, the MPP um, program. Uh, we have, um, we completely agree with everyone that says that there is no way that this can be done humanely, uh, but are doing everything that we can to make it different from what was done under, under the Trump administration. Um, there and there are there is still substantial work that needs to be done um, to create a fair and orderly and humane asylum system for um, asylum seekers coming to to our border. Um, on the immigration um, reform front, um, President on day one um, sent to the Congress the most um, ambitious, um, generous. Um, immigration reform bill and legalization bill for the undocumented that I've ever worked on. And I've been at this for more than 20 years. It was a product that we were all very, very proud of. Um, unfortunately, um, efforts um, to move that bill stalled. Um, but And so we put all of our support behind the reconciliation process. Um, as many of you on this call know, we have had um, uh, uh, some 
significant challenges there. <laughs> that work is not over and we are continuing to push on that front. Um, but it, it has been very, very frustrating that we have not been able to, to get um, immigration reform um, done. Um, let me just stop by, by um, just saying, um, I've, I've worked in this area for now over 30 years in and out uh, of government. Um, and when I have been out of government, um, I have always wondered, why is it taking so long? Why don't they do, um, why don't they change policies faster? Uh, why, um, why don't we uh, put in place the broadest possible uh, policies um, to help people? When I have been in government, and that has been now more than 18 years, <laughs> I, I, uh, I realize every day how difficult it is to enact change. Um, yeah, there are so many different considerations that have to be taken in, in, into account. There are so many court challenges that, that um, thwart our ability to do, um, um, to implement broader change. And then there are um, other policies at play that have to be taken into consideration as, as, as one works on um, reforming our system. Um, there's a lot of work that we have done that I am very, very proud of, and there's a lot of work that is still underway uh, that will be significant and, and will help many, many people. Um, as I will be leaving the government soon, but I know that this work um, will continue here, and um, it's um, been look forward to um, working with all of you um, and, and hoping you continue to do the work that you do so well, which is holding us accountable um, to continue to press for the changes that are needed. Let me stop there. Thank you, Esther, very much. And thank you for not only that overview, but your observations personally, because of course you've been a veteran here for such a very long time and uh, these are important things to understand. Uh, the people that will still be here and working away at it include uh, uh, Lorella Preli, one of the young rising leaders in the immigrant advocacy world. Uh, Lorella, how does this all look to you? I'm gonna ask you to be as um, crisp as possible and keep it to five minutes, but the issue of the disappointments in the Congress as well as the uh, importance of executive action going forward are certainly in the center of your thinking and that of those colleagues that you work with. So tell us what you can. Thank you, Doris. Uh, it's an honor to follow you, Esther. I wanna start by appreciating MPI's rigorous work quickly, uh, really documenting immigration policy under both Trump and Biden. It is no small task to track and really to contextualize hundreds of policy changes in multiple federal agencies. And your dedication to that work is a service to our movement and to the broader American public. It's also that same movement and the high levels of support among the American public that have gotten us closer to winning citizenship for millions than we've been in 35 years. So the window for Build Back Better isn't close quite yet and we continue to fight, but to be crystal clear, Build Back Better became a vehicle for citizenship in the first place, only thanks to the relentless fight of immigrant communities and our allies. The We Are Home campaign has been agitating and advocating on citizenship since day one of this administration. And as a reminder, in the early days of his term, the president did issue a number of very strong EOs and other announcements on immigration, 
This is absolutely true. But it was unclear to us then that he was prepared to fight for a legislative win. We weren't on the transition website. We weren't in their initial vision for either ARP or Build Back Better. Like Esther said, the day one bill was the strongest immigration bill we've ever seen, but it didn't have a path to pass with the filibuster in place. So our movement found a vehicle that could pass. We made the case for inclusion, and then we fought for it every day in the streets and behind the scenes to get Build Back Better across the finish line. The parliamentarian's advisory opinions have been devastating, but we believe that she's wrong and we continue to call on the Democrats to disregard her opinions and to pass the bill with citizenship included. We also know that a path to citizenship is not by itself a solution to the precarity that so many immigrants and would-be immigrants contend with every day. Alongside the citizenship fight, we've consistently called on the president to use the full scope of his authority in the executive branch to reverse Trump's litany of anti-immigrant policies and to go further, to overhaul the system to reduce the harms of enforcement, which disproportionately fall on Black immigrants, and to affirmatively protect immigrant communities. For the most part, I agree with the assessment that Moose put forth. Outside of border and asylum, the administration has indeed made progress on a number of fronts, ending the Muslim and Africa bans, ending mass worksite raids, rescinding the public charge, defending DACA in the courts, beginning to reverse Trump's decimation of the refugee resettlement program and designating several countries for TPS. Much of this progress happened as a direct result of movement pressure, which was met, to be fair, by willing partners on the inside. And there's also so much work left to be done. So I wanna use a few minutes really to focus on three priority demands of the We Are Home campaign and to urge the administration to use year two to realize it's yet unfulfilled campaign promises. First, it is long past time for this administration to restore meaningful access to asylum at the border. This was, as a reminder, a cornerstone of the president's campaign immigration platform. Unfortunately, rather than assert moral leadership on this issue, the White House has adopted a defensive posture in all things border, ceding the rhetorical framework to the Republicans and embracing and even expanding Trump's deadly anti-asylum border policies. Political expediency will simply never justify the administration's expulsion of nearly 14,000 Haitians since September, including children and infants, to a country struggling with a deteriorating security situation and persistent humanitarian, economic, and political crises. President Biden must also finally rescind Title 42. Today, the administration is in court arguing to keep it in place, and we believe that is absolutely shameful. They must also rescind MPP in their entirety in order to build a fair and functional asylum system at the border and to really begin to tackle the challenges of regional migration, including climate change, without relying on the deterrence first approach that has anchored their policies to date. Second, on ICE detention. Virtually every federal agency other than DHS enforces its civil administrative scheme without jailing people. The immigration detention system 
detention system, by contrast, functions as a system of imprisonment without trial. As we all know, this system has ballooned in size over the past three decades. Ironically, President Biden inherited from Trump an ICE detention system with the smallest population since 1999. It was an incredible opportunity to cap detention numbers and to begin to reduce them even further. Instead, detention levels began to rise last spring, peaking at almost twice January 2021 levels. Today, the average daily detained population is about 7,000 higher than it was a year ago. In fact, 22,000 people are in ICE custody right now, even though COVID continues to ravage jails and prisons across the country. And unfortunately, the president has broken his campaign promise to end the use of private detentions, excuse me, the end of private prisons for immigration detention. According to the ACLU, as of September 2021, 79% of people jailed by ICE are still in private prisons. But the president can change course today by announcing an end to the use of private prisons for ICE purposes, releasing people to navigate their immigration cases with their family and loved ones not behind bars and closing ICE jails for good. Finally, TPS. The Biden administration has already used his authority under the TPS statute to protect hundreds of thousands of people, which is great and very important, but current country conditions justify additional designations redesignations and extensions of TPS that could help many more, including people from Guatemala, Cameroon, and Ethiopia, all need initial designations, as well as El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Sudan, and Nepal, the Ramos countries that were extended but not redesignated. And this is not even an exhaustive list. Congress gave the TPS authority to the executive branch and we're calling on the administration to use it. No excuses. A reminder for us all, returning to the pre-Trump status quo, since this seems to be the, comparing, the, the framework that we're using to compare and to assess where we are, returning to the pre-Trump status quo is the bare minimum. And a path to citizenship for some, but not all, was never going to be enough. An omnibus immigration bill would not be enough. We aren't fighting for CIR as we've known it anymore. And so the call to action must be far more ambitious. Earlier, I mentioned the precarity facing millions of immigrants every day, but it's not only immigrants, too many American citizens live paycheck to paycheck or worse without access to good healthcare, good education, housing, subjected to racist policing, unjust criminalization, and the list goes on. The system as it's structured today does not work for our communities. The federal courts have been captured by the right and our democracy itself is on life support. So our movement must chart the future, understanding our fight as part of a whole, locating ourselves in a broader vision for our country. And our fight to state the obvious is not just a policy fight. It is a political fight, an electoral fight, a narrative fight, and a cultural fight. How is our side going to build the power that we need to create a society and an economy and a politics where all communities can thrive. This is a mandate not only for the movement, we need more courageous 
and daring Democrats. We need politicians, regardless of party, to act with courage. This is a mandate for any person in office who claims to be pro-immigrant. We need to be fighting for our people with the same intensity that the right is fighting against us. It is long past time to go to the mat. And so I'm calling Doris today on the administration to act boldly this year, because when people elect you, you have a time bound project and you have to figure out how to make it happen. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Now, the audience has heard some, a lot of good information, uh, a lot of feedback from what the administration is doing and a very, very strong set of views from the immigrant advocacy community. We are up against a real time problem. Um, and so we're going to go a couple of minutes over, but our final speaker, Elizabeth, needs to jump off in just a few minutes. So I want Elizabeth now to fully have the floor for as long as she can uh, uh, until she needs to leave, because it's important to step back and recognize where immigration fits in the firmament of our government agencies and having been defined as a national security issue by the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. Elizabeth, how does all of this look to you as a national security specialist uh, and somebody that has worked in this realm within the government in DHS? Thanks so much, Doris. And I've really appreciated everybody's, um, uh, all of my fellow panelists comments and, and the report that MPI put out. I, I confess, I was not tracking all of the amazing things, the progress that has been made. So it, it's definitely a um, helpful um, um, for, for us to have that good grasp of, of the progress that's been made over the last year. Um, I wanted to start by just sharing as a former DHS employee, um, because I do think it's important to understand uh, the challenge that any administration has coming in uh, through a transition. Um, it is hard to explain to somebody who hasn't worked there how broken DHS is on a normal day. I mean, like pick 10 years ago, pick 15 years ago, it's, it's still a new department. The headquarters was intentionally underfunded when it was stood up. That was like the only way they could get the law to pass was to claim that it would be budget neutral. Um, that has never been corrected. Uh, in fact, it's grown worse over the years. The components continue to have larger and larger budgets, but the headquarters elements that are supposed to be overseeing and coordinating um, continue to have smaller budgets. Uh, so there's never enough resources to do the mandate and the mandate keeps growing. Um, so you have that, you have the fact that DHS is only 20 years old. If you compare it to DOD or state, there is not the culture, the institutionalism that um, those other agencies had to be able to endure the whiplash effect of, of politicization and going from administration to administration, take politics out of it. Anytime you change administrations, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot that gets thrown up in the air, and, and you've got to figure out how to move things forward. Older organizations like state and DOD are well equipped to handle that. DHS just is too young um, to have that institutional capability. Then you add the Trump years, and the reality is um, we were receiving scrutiny daily uh, from the president, multiple times a day, getting phone calls. Um, anything you tried to get done was usually disrupted by those phone calls. Uh, there was no breathing room to address other threats. Other parts of the organization were kind of left to try to figure it out themselves. Um, it was constant crisis, and that exhausted the people and the organizations. Last year in particular, uh, sorry, I should say now two years ago, 2020, um, 
there was almost nobody left. You had a, a, a ton of retirements of civil servants. These are the career SESs that normally you appoint as the transition officials. Many of them, uh, the most senior and tenured people had left. Um, so you had multiple people fleeting up levels above what they were maybe qualified to do. And you had a number of political appointees coming in with no experience and um, taking the reins and, and creating a very hostile environment for many civil servants. Uh, this has been well reported at this point. Um, so you, you, you come out of that um, and you have an organization of civil servants who are exhausted, morale is low, um, they are being asked to, to work more hours than they should just because they're, we're under-resourced. And then you get a new administration in who's super excited, chomping at the bit to make changes. Uh, meanwhile, we're still in a pandemic. We're dealing with a domestic violent extremism problem that was not properly addressed by the previous administration. You're dealing with um, a surge at the border due to the economic conditions created by the pandemic. Uh, there are all these crises that some, you know, arguably were predictable, um, but nonetheless, and the very difficult to tackle in your first day on office. Um, so I think. As you know, we critique or offer suggestions to the administration. I, I, I think that is good and a great thing about our country is that we can say you should have or I wish you would. Um, but I, I also feel a great deal of empathy for the people that stepped in and have been trying to uh, turn the ship, so to speak, and like get the ship. It's not even turning the ship. It's like it, the ship it capsized. You're trying to right size the ship and then turn it. It's it's a lot and. Um, uh, I'm grateful uh, for those men and women that chose to go back in and, and, and try to do some good work. Um, so I think that's probably the most important thing I could share. Um, I, a couple of highlights from the MPI report, really pleased to see that um, some of the fixes have been put in place for the U visa. I um, frequently got calls from US attorneys, from um, investigators that, that run the human trafficking task forces that they were, they were not making progress against the cartels, against the human traffickers, because the victims um, had been advised by their attorneys that it was not safe to apply for those visas because if they were denied, they might end up uh, getting deported. And so the, the guidance that attorneys had been giving is like, I, you are eligible, you should get this, but we can't trust the way that this is being run. And so it had this chilling effect and we weren't able to get the traffickers. We weren't able to save more people. And as a security professional, that's just, it was both heartbreaking and really aggravating um, that we would get in our own way. Um, you had the president on one hand say, we're, we're gonna take care of those cartels. And on the other side, take actions that prohibited us from being able to go after the cartels. So I'm glad to see that that is fixed. Um, the travel ban, I actually, uh, my team was uh, responsible for implementing the legal uh, part of the travel ban. Um, I am uh, pleased that it's been overturned. Um, I, I thought that the stick that was used was not the appropriate tool to achieve the end result. That said, there were some um, aspects of uh, not the ban, but the, the underbelly of, of the criteria we use to assess a country's capabilities to do identity information and information sharing. I would encourage the administration to look at those. I think there is a security value. I don't think it requires a ban to use those tools. 
Um, and then uh, my my um, heart's passion is uh, refugees. Um, I was overseeing the team that did the screening and vetting related to um, improving uh, uh, the, the security vetting of refugees. I had been out of Washington for five years. I came in and had seen the recent uh, talking points that we needed to do a better job of security vetting. Uh, and, you know, initially I gave folks the benefit of the doubt. Then I looked into the programs and I went to Egypt and watched us, uh, watched our officers do refugee interviews. And I uh, looked under the hood of our, our vetting apparatus. And it's not that improvements can't be made, but we are doing such a remarkable job compared to where we were in 9-11 and compared to where we were, quite frankly, in 2012. A lot of changes happened after the, uh, what many people might remember as the underwear bomber um, attempted takedown of a, of a plane. Um, ton of changes happened in the vetting community. And today um, it would be very difficult for a terrorist to a known or suspected terrorist. Uh, so somebody on our watch list, it would be very difficult for them to gain entry into the United States. Um, consequently, by the way, if you're a terrorist trying to figure out how to get here, you know which way you wouldn't choose. The refugee system, because that is the most rigorous place where we vet people, uh, and it takes years. So I feel very, very uh, comfortable encouraging the American people that you can welcome refugees with open arms, um, and that you can feel safe about doing so, and that it is good for both our economic, national, and national security to be welcoming to refugees. Um, I, I, I was disappointed in the Afghan withdrawal. Um, I thought that could have been handled well. I think most people agree with that. Um, and uh, certainly the vetting, um, I was a little nervous about the first few weeks there. I, I've been briefed on the way in which they retrofitted our vetting processes. I feel very comfortable that the people that have been admitted through parole um, have uh, been vetted in, a, in the same robust way that we vet other people coming into the country. Um, so for that reason, I, I really condemn any rhetoric that suggests that we've let terrorists in. I, um, in my day job, uh, focus on domestic violent extremists, and we have seen online rhetoric that actually uses uh, the fear-mongering about refugees to encourage violent extremists to go and conduct attacks against the refugees and against people providing refugee services. And so for the sake of um, our public safety, I would encourage all policymakers and politicians to stop the fear-mongering. Let's base our policy disagreements and conversations on fact, not on the fear. So that's uh, where I'll leave it. And I apologize that I have to jump off, but thank you so much for having me, Doris. Thank you very much, Elizabeth, and thanks for those comments. Okay, we, uh, this is a good indication of how much there is to talk about is that we've taken up the time uh, uh, that otherwise we would have uh, devoted to Q&A, but I do wanna be able to have some Q&A. So we will stay over for about five minutes uh, and let me pick out some of the questions that have come in from the audience. Uh, most of them are directed at the administration. And so they're questions for you, Esther. Uh, and I will group a number of them. Uh, but let me start first and, and just give us shotgun answers in order that we can get through a couple of topics. 
Um, you talked about the difficulty of ramping up to 125,000 refugee admissions. And uh, of course, that's a very, very uh, steep ramp up. But what about the resettlement infrastructure? Because the resettlement infrastructure, of course, has to be rebuilt as well. Where, where do we stand on, on that rebuilding? You, I'm sorry. Okay, here, I'm unmuted. Yes, um, you're absolutely right. The resettlement infrastructure does have to be real, rebuilt. That was another thing that was dismantled, essentially, when the, um, the refugee admissions program essentially dried up. So there is significant work underway. It takes time. Um, we have had historically very important partners that continue to remain committed. Um, there is... Um, efforts underway to secure additional funding um, in the Congress through the budget process to fund these agencies and, and put back in place a robust resettlement program. Okay, let me go to the, uh, an issue that has to do with the border and that is Title 42. You yourself have mentioned that, um, uh, that that's a point, obviously been a point of contention. What, could you spin out for us what you see to be the the future there? I mean, what would be the criteria under which Title 42 would change as a policy in the current administration? So it's, I am not an expert on, on public health issues. I, I defer to the CDC on that front. Um, um, so that is a primary concern. Um, yes, it's true that we are putting in place uh, vac uh, vaccination structures, uh, vaccine structures that, that will um, eventually um, create the conditions um, where um, we, we may be able to have a change in policy. We're not there yet, but I think that would be the primary point. The other is, um, of course, in restoring um, the infrastructure and the personnel that is needed to, to process these cases. And, and a lot of work is underway there to, to um, figure out what is the best process coming forward when we're ready to to um, um, undo Title 42. So you do at least, you do, you do foresee that there will be an undoing at some point, but that is connected to the broader public health crisis we're still in. I want to take you now to uh, the issue of the overall agenda for the administration. I mean, the administration has a huge list of things that obviously we've covered in this report. But Esther, is, the, is there any thought within the administration of the administration putting out its own uh, list of uh, 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 progress on the whole agenda of actions? Uh, we are working on that actually as we speak. Um, um, we have... <laughs> There are just so many hours in the day, to be completely honest with you, um, devoted to continue to work on the policies that we are implementing. And, and uh, but there is work underway um, to try to put together a list um, of, of accomplishments that, that um, you'll see soon. OK, uh, finally, I'm going to turn to Afghanistan. There are a whole set of questions about Afghanistan and um, Luz, you might want to comment on, 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 on these as well. Two, let me ask it in two parts. Uh, this issue that you raised, Esther, about parole for Afghanis uh, is clearly a, 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 a 
problematic solution for people that are likely uh, that are akin to refugees and are likely to be staying in the United States. Is there any potential for something like a Lautenberg uh, 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 response, any discussion, given how bipartisan the issue has actually been of uh, resettling uh, and offering refuge to Afghanis? And secondly, that goes to the bigger issue of parole and the use of parole. The use of parole has just exploded in, uh, uh, you know, in, the, in the last year or so. Uh, what are there hazards where this extraordinary use of parole is concerned that, that we need to be paying attention to in the immigration field? So Esther, why don't you start out with uh, uh, the Afghan issue and parole and uh, 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 what, what broader solutions there might be a possibility for? And Moose, perhaps you can speak a little bit about parole in peer period. Yeah, there, there are still lots of conversations underway within the administration and, and, and with experts to, to try to come up with a better way forward. Um, having a channeling, you know, more than 70,000 um, individuals through our already clogged up um, affirmative asylum system is not the answer. Um, that, that is what we have right now in place. It's, it wasn't our choice. Um, so we are continuing to look um, um, creatively um, to see what more can be done administratively and to see whether there's another opportunity to go back um, to the Congress to come up with, with a better legislative solution. Moose, final word on parole. I don't want to add much more. We don't have time. But, you know, obviously this just shows you that the parole has been used extensively because it's one of the few things the administration can do. Uh, and therefore, it has, you know, in the eyes of some, overused it. But when Congress is not willing to give you what is needed, that's what you rely on. This is a temporary fix. And people should, we should all acknowledge the Afghan situation is a one-time big crisis. And therefore, it requires at least similar kind of action from Congress than we have done with populations from Europe and other parts of the world in the past to provide adjustment through a legislative fix. Thank you very much. And thank you to the audience for being with us. We are so sorry that uh, we haven't been able to answer more of the questions. There's been a lot of information and points of view to get out. We will try to answer as many as we can of those that have come across the, um, uh, uh, you know, into, into, into the events box. And um, we also want you to know that the audio of this event, this discussion, will be available on our website tomorrow. Uh, reporters who may have been on the call uh, who wish to ask follow-up questions, please be in touch with Michelle Middlestadt at mmiddlestadt at migrationpolicy.org, and we'll field those questions and respond. Uh, and then finally, let me remind you again to the uh, analysis that we posted today on our website done by Jessica Bolter and Muzaffar Shishti called Biden at, at the one year mark, a greater change in direction on immigration that is recognized. It details for you the things that we've been talking about today. So again, thank you very much for your interest. Thanks for being with us and we will now sign off. <laughs>